You're listening to the Butterfly Effect Podcast, episode number 30. Today I'm sitting down with Dr. Drew Jameson again. He's a naturopathic doctor from Vancouver, and we will be chatting everything stress, sleep, inflammation, and hormone related, and how all of that affects your health and weight loss goals. The Butterfly Effect Podcast is brought to you by The Sweat Effect. If you like receiving discounts while supporting the podcast, visit thesweateffect.com slash podcast to see all of the podcast supporters and save money on everything from protein bars to skincare while you're at it. If you enjoy this episode, all I ask is that you screenshot it and share it on your social media story or feed to show your love. If you have a second to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or SoundCloud, the show can continue to grow and expand its listeners. Taking the time to share it with your followers and subscribers will totally help keep it thriving so I can continue to bring you quality episodes like the one you listen to today. This is the Butterfly Effect Podcast, and I'm Ashlyn Newlove, tackling everything from fitness, nutrition, business, life, ice cream cones, and everything else in between to help inspire people to make one change that causes their ripple effect. Welcome to episode number 30. So for those of you who don't know me, I'm a fitness and nutrition coach helping people have fun, keep fit and reach their goals while they're at it with my online program, The Sweat Effect. Dr. Drew came on the show back on episode 25 and my listeners and clients were so stoked on his advice that he has now started working with a ton of them virtually towards their health goals. Since that episode, Drew and I actually got to meet in real life. So welcome back to the show, Drew. Hey, thanks for having me, Ashlyn. Excited to be back. Yes, we, like the listeners, my clients, they're so stoked on this episode. They're just waiting for it to come out and uh, they love you. They just, they, 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 all want, <laughs> they all want Dr. Drew in their life. <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure working with them. Um, as you mentioned, a handful have reached out since that podcast we did in the fall. And so it's been cool with uh, obviously the pandemic setting up telemedicine and just getting that going that uh, now I can reach people all over. So uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And like I said, you got a good crew there in community. So I'm pumped to be part of it now. Yeah. So, okay. The listeners who listened to the previous podcast, they kind of know a little bit about you, but anybody who didn't, I think you should give them your elevator pitch. All right, let's do it. So I'm a naturopathic physician based in the Vancouver, BC area, and I've been in practice a little over six years now, and I have two physical locations in Burnaby and New Westminster, and I have a clinical focus in sports management, uh, pain, I do a lot of regenerative injections, and then I do a lot of nutrition, gut health, hormones, sleep, stress. Those are kind of the main areas and arenas I hang out in. The thing with naturopathic doctors, if, if you meet five of them, You'll get five very different people personality-wise as well as their areas of focus. So I have lots of colleagues that will maybe do fertility or they'll work with kids or the elderly. Uh, so each one of us has kind of the areas that we like to hang out in. So those are the main ones that I have been focusing on for the last several years and obviously very passionate about what I do. And I kind of look at it as lifestyle medicine because whether I'm in the clinic or at home, I'm kind of just like living and breathing health and, and making sure I get people excited um, to look after theirs. And yeah, I kind of found naturopathic medicine through my own health struggles because I was kicked around the system for years. I had chronic pain. I was sent for scans and tests and not given much hope. So 
once I found naturopathic medicine, I kind of never looked back and I just realized I'm like, this is what a doctor should be. This is what medicine should look like. And so I instantly became hooked and I was under the care of an ND for about six years. And then he was the one that turned to me eventually and said, you need to go back to school. Uh, you'd be a, a great addition to the profession. And he's like, profession needs more guys, needs more sports medicine focused individuals. And so that was what I did back in 2011. And I've been full-time working since 2015. And recently, last year uh, with the pandemic and the kickstart of telemedicine, uh, I, I'm now accessible to uh, patients pretty much all over the world. So uh, there was a lot of silver lining that came over this last 12 months, even though I know uh, it's been a pretty challenging year for a lot of people. But there's been so a lot of good, a whole lot of good, actually. So that's cool. Yeah, it it has like while, like you said, it's been shitty for a lot of people. There have yep. been some really good things that have opened up in the past year as well. Um, even like lawyers, for instance, <laughs> I'm in the process of <laughs> it's time to get a will. And now you don't even have to meet with your lawyer in person. Everything can happen with Zoom meetings and stuff. So yeah, like I think it's taken, you know, a bunch of different professions to, you know, a step in the in the future, then they were kind of sitting back in the past a little bit. So yeah, totally. but I, if you guys follow Drew on Instagram, if you don't, you should, because <laughs> he gives tips all day long about all the different things. Um, one day you were talking about, you know, supplements for inflammation. And if anybody knows me, I am an inflamed human because of my back. So I reached out to Drew and I was like, Drew, what should I be doing? Like, I will take the supplements. Tell me what to take. And uh, you had, yeah, a very specific list of things that you wanted people to be doing to reduce inflammation. And I needed it. Like I needed to get the inflammation down in around my back injury. And when I did, and I was, you know, started stretching and could, you know, lengthen the, the muscles back again, because they were really, really tight. I feel so much better. And I, religiously taking my supplements every day. And do you know how much I hate swallowing pills? <laughs> and it's, it's a decent amount of pills and some of them are pretty big. <laughs> so, but I want that. I think that's a good place to start is because sure. that's what you did on Instagram that day. You had stories all leading up to the best way to reduce inflammation. Yes. And a very important topic for pretty much everyone listening. Cause the thing with inflammation is it's a normal, protective response by the body in relation to something that could be harmful. So acute little bouts of inflammation are actually quite healthy. It's your body's way to like heal, respond to a stimulus. Maybe you cut your finger, you sprain your ankle. You kind of want that area to be inflamed. Problem with most people is they have way too much chronic inflammation that lasts long term. So the inflammation starts and then it never goes away. And what that does to your system over the long haul is it just causes tons of irritation and confusion. So now your immune system responds too much to a specific area and you can start to damage your own healthy tissue because the chronic inflammation is just running your system out of control. Uh, so the thing too is it doesn't always seem and feel so obvious. A lot of inflammation can come from the gut, but usually most people have had an ache or a pain or an injury. And I'm telling you, if you have a chronic ligament, tendon, spine, back issue, whatever it ends up being. If there's chronic pain in that area, that's that's pretty much a sign of inflammation. And so there's many, many things you can do to approach this and help heal it. Uh, some of the regenerative injections I mentioned in the intro is a way I target this because if you have 
a chronic sports injury that hasn't healed, you might want to kickstart the area with a little bit of healing and some micro dose specific inflammation in that area is one way to do it. And then obviously I use a lot of supplements that Ashton was alluding to. And there's a whole list that we can kind of go through here, but some of my favorite ones that I know we talked about and that I mentioned uh, in one of my stories the other day, um, certainly fish oils are great for this high dose EPA and DHA high quality fish oils are really good at getting rid of inflammation, uh, high potency curcumin, which is a herb. Oh, let's just, Boswellia. can yeah. you tell them, because you educated me on the fish oil as well, which yeah. ones were the ones to be looking for? Sure. Yeah, I'll back that up. So when fish oil comes in the form of omega-3, that's a essential fatty acid, really good for controlling inflammation in the body. So there's two different types. There's EPA, which is specific for pain and inflammation. And then there's DHA, which is good for brain health. Now we can safely say we need a lot of both, but if you're in pain or you have a lot of inflammation, you want to look for high potency EPA fish oil products. Is that what you were kind of referring to? Yes. Dr. yes. Yeah. You want to make sure it's EPA. And if you can't remember which one's for which, just remember EPA because there's a P in it. That stands for pain. And that's a good little memory trick. And then DHA for brain-specific stuff. So that's the fish oil side of things. And I do prefer that over flax seeds, uh, chia seeds, walnuts. A lot of people will say, oh, I can get my omega-3s from these plants or these seeds. Trouble with that is that they have to be converted to EPA and DHA. So the conversion step is not very efficient in your body. It's only something like 4 to 20%, depending on the person. So if you take a ton of omega-3 and in the form of plants, you still have to convert it to EPA and DHA. And it's such a poor conversion, you're way better off getting fish oil or krill oil instead. And that's the thing. Like People are always like, oh, I know fish oil is good for me. But then a lot of people never end up taking it. Back, way back in, totally. the, in the day, Like people of CrossFit were all over fish oil. And we used to take it, and then we quit. But... It's back in my life again because of you. Yeah, It's a good reminder. Yeah. And I've going in and out of phases over the years, you kind of listen to your body. And again, if you're inflamed or have a lot of those signs and symptoms I've been talking about, might want to revisit this topic for sure. You can also do a blood test. It's called an omega-3 index test where they actually take a blood sample and see what percentage of the red blood cell is actually omega-3. And you kind of want that between four and 8%, preferably closer to 8%. And if it's under four, you know, you just tend towards tons of inflammation. And the thing with inflammation is it's linked to cancers, heart disease, strokes, uh, all, all those things you're trying to avoid as we age. The common denominator with those is patients are usually highly inflamed. So you want that omega-3 index above 4% and preferably closer to 8. So you can track it and then uh, hack it essentially that way. Um, this is just unrelated to that, but that, do you find that when people are supplementing, are bringing down their inflammation, like is research showing that major disease, you know, is less or do they even have enough to support anything? Yeah, it's a good question because my, my first point was they find these people that are sick and they find the common denominator of high amounts of inflammation. So right away, you can kind of make the connection that, okay, probably something you want to look at. Although I'm not sure if they've tracked that in detail with healthy people. I'm, I'm sure they have though. I'm sure we could probably find a better answer to that. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, but that's enough for me when I hear that and see that. And I've read tons of research on this where I'm just like all the common denominators with these chronic diseases is like, they, you know, they check them and it's like, yeah, they're inflamed. And it's like, okay, so you want to, you want to fan the flames of inflammation and get that fire out. Um, yeah. So number one, Fish oil. Yep. So there's a big one. And then I was going to move into the herbs. So there's tons mm -hmm. of herbs that you can use as an anti-inflammatory effect in the body. Curcumin or turmeric is very common. People usually have heard of that one because 
A lot of people have it in their spice rack or they'll cook with it, which is a great option. However, if you're looking for the anti-inflammatory effects, you definitely want like a nice concentrated amount. Um, Theracurmin is the best one on the market because um, it's most highly bioavailable and it spikes the blood levels um, relatively nicely. So that one I'll use all the time for like osteoarthritis type pain, um, chronic aches and pains. Plus, if you're using the one out of your cupboard, I had a friend who was doing that for inflammation. It like stained her teeth aligners yellow. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, yep. why deal with that stuff? Just it's a get pretty it. intense color. It is. Yeah. And I take the, it's Theracurmin, right? Theracurmin, yeah. yeah. The one that you recommended in the pill form too. And yeah. Much better. Very easy. And it's just, you know, a little bit of a concentrated powder in a capsule, boom, uh, easy to take. And so that's really good. Boswellia. And then there's another one called Devil's Claw. Those are two other herbs that you can look into. They're a little more specific for arthritis or rheumatoid arthritis. But yeah, a lot of herbs you can use. And, you know, some of these have been looked at uh, up against like Aleve or ibuprofen or naproxen. And those are non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications that are very hard on the body. And if you dose these herbs right, you can get a similar pain-killing an anti-inflammatory effect without the negative side effects of those pain meds because number one cause um, of GI bleeds in the ER room is people taking too many of these non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. So if anyone out there is popping ibuprofen, Aleve, or Advil all the time, you'll want to make sure that you get that down and out as soon as possible. Short term is one thing, but um, you'll get ulcers and bleeds and it'd be really hard on your gut after a while if you're taking those all the time. So you, you're looking for some alternatives here, right? Yeah. Like even for me, I've noticed if I took like an Advil and didn't have enough food in my stomach, I'm like, mm, my stomach feels like Bernie. That can't yeah. be good, right? Not at all. <laughs> so. You know why that is actually? Bernie's a good word because the non anti-inflammatories of the Advil actually thins the mucus that protects your gut lining from stomach acid. That's why, you're, that's why your body creates mucus along the stomach because there's stomach acid in there. And if that mucus thins, the stomach acid will now burn your stomach or potentially, like I said, lead to an ulcer or a bleed. So yeah, it's not good news. And I know they're commonly reached for, um, you know, during the monthly cycle for females, that's a question I always ask, like, are the cramps and, and bleeding so painful that you take painkillers? And a lot of people just think, oh yeah, just take my Advil every month. And that's that because the doctor said so. And so, yeah, there's some, there's some things here that uh, you want to keep an eye on. Yeah. So, okay. So for specific, like you said, monthly cramps or whatever, what, which would be the best herbs for that one? Essentially the three I just described, right? The devil's claw, Boswellia. Devil's claw, Boswellia. You could definitely use um, curcumin as well. Uh, Hot water bottle, castor oil packs would be good as well. I usually recommend those for digestive cramps, spasms, and stomach pains, but you can also use them on the lower abdomen around the ovaries or uterus. Um, With a hot water bottle, a little bit of a castor oil pack would be a good option there as well. And then, of course, hormone balancing, right, which is a big topic we talked about last time where it's Mm -hmm. like making sure the liver removing the hormones from the body is happening efficiently and then make sure you balance estrogen and progesterone because cramps should never be debilitating to the point where you're either doubled over on the couch or having to take pain meds all the time. Yeah, no, we, we had a, so anybody who hasn't listened to episode 25, go back and listen to, cause yeah, we dug into, um, a lot about like, yeah, female hormone health as yep. well as gut health and oh, uh, prolotherapy and whatnot for injury repair. So yeah, those ones are all good. Um, all my faves as well. 
couple um, others for the inflammation if you want me to wrap it up. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I was going to say. The other one we talked about was the collagen as well. Mm-hmm. And not necessarily just the first thing I think of for inflammation, but it's the first thing I think of if people have joint pain, ligament, or tendon problems. So this is an important one. This pretty much hit the supplement shelves maybe three, four years ago now, and collagen has just exploded ever since. And at first I thought it was a lot of hype. Uh, but now I've researched it extensively. I actually did a full blog post and video breakdown of it for Organica, for those of you that know the brand. And so I've actually researched it quite a lot over the last few months. And I've been using it clinically for the last three years on myself and with patients. It, it just works so damn awesome. I tell everyone about it. Yep. Most people are collagen deficient. Anyone with chronic injuries, nagging things, uh, post-surgery, post-workout, it's such a good supplement to include because it gives your body the raw materials to regenerate and build the areas that you've just stressed or broken down. So can't say enough good stuff about it. You do get it from your diet if you're eating high-quality proteins, but a lot of people are not doing bone broth soups. They're not eating the skin on chicken. Uh, they're not eating nose to tail, essentially, so you don't get a ton of collagen in your diet. When If you look Tens of thousands of years ago, our ancestors would have had that nose to tail effect. And so they would have got way more collagen than we get now. So our DNA and genetics haven't changed that much, but our diet has. And that's why recovery, I find, is tricky for some people. But you add this in with your post-workout shake or in your smoothie every day, friggin' game changer. So that's just one piece I want to add. I do mine with my coffee. Most of them are... Yeah, it goes really good in hot beverages too, yeah. Yeah, and I like I don't notice it at all um, it, because, yeah, they're mine even like says right on it that it's you know heat safe because i read yep. a post a long time ago that's like most collagen isn't heat safe and i'm like mm, actually that's false most of them are are they not totally yeah i would say most collagens are going to be heat stable blender stable you can't say the same about protein powders the thing with collagen it's just a mixture of about three amino acids where protein powders are 20 amino acids like complete protein profile and those aren't as stable uh with tons of blending or high heat like um like collagen is but yeah you can put collagen just about anything well do you have a brand of protein powder that you like that's all heat and blender safe i didn't well, know that now i feel like a dummy well, yeah. I mean, if you take like boiling hot coffee and you want to throw collagen in there, I'd say you're probably okay. But if it's like really hot coffee and you want to throw in like whey protein powder, or I use a lot of beef protein powder, um, or sometimes I'll use the Blonix egg white protein powder. Mm -hmm. Those are not as stable in crazy high temperatures. So you just have to remember that. And when I say blend, like, yeah, you blend your smoothie, don't worry, but don't leave it on there for minutes and minutes and minutes and minutes. Um, especially in a Vitamix, cause that sucker can blend fast. Right. Like you could denature regular protein if you overblend it or it's in high temperatures. This is me being super nitpicky though. Don't think like you're ruining everything. But no, for sure. Just a little tidbit. Yeah, but just know that if you're putting it in your coffee, if it's really hot, then it might not then be doing that. Then that could the... be a problem. Yeah. But collagen's fine for that. Um you had a few you had some others for me. Glucosamine, mm. right? Glucosamine and chondroitin, yeah, again, um, really good for any joint pains. Uh, it's essentially the precursor material for your cartilage and joint surfaces that make up all the joints of your body. And another one that people are not getting a ton of through the diet, again, if you're doing maybe bone broth, um, homemade or purchased, you're going to get a little bit of it, but typically way under consumed. So I like around 1,500 milligrams a day of glucosamine and around 1,200 milligrams a day of chondroitin, which is cartilage. Yep. And those are other good ones too. 
trying to think if there's any other big things for inflammation. There's a couple things to test. I already mentioned the omega-3 index. And the other big one is testing and optimizing your vitamin D. Now, we may have talked about this in the previous podcast for uh, the importance for the immune system and the hormone system, mm-hmm. but also testing and optimizing your vitamin D helps keep your inflammatory markers down in your blood because there's two big ways we look at inflammation and we track it in the blood. We do a CRP, which is a C-reactive protein blood test, and you can also do an ESR blood test. And these are just markers that have a reference range. And obviously, you want to be in an optimal range for that and not have too high of uh, either. And so when you test and optimize your vitamin D, it helps lower CRP and ESR, which is a good thing. Do you take vitamin D all year round or in the summertime, do you let it do its thing? All year round. You, you know, do. unless unless mm. you're a nudist in the summer and you're getting a ton of sun, I, I can't argue that in Canada, it's enough to generate what you need. Interesting. I yeah. thought that we could get enough in the summer. Well, I mean, if you're on the beach more days than not getting... 20 minutes of chest and back exposure, preferably more at the peak points of the day. Chest you and might be back able, exposure. Chest and back, yes. <laughs> well, you You're dropping so many area, knowledge right? bombs on me today. Because <laughs> a lot of people will be like, oh, I go out in every day in the summer. And I'm like, okay, what do you dress like? And it's like, well, just my arms and face are exposed. I'm like, well, that's probably less than 20% of your body. Yeah. So that's still not enough sun hitting your skin. So that's why I say chest and back exposure of 20 minutes. And then you can generate around 20,000 IUs on a, on a nice summer day. But you have to think of the arc angle of the sun here most of the year. Like two months of the year, arguably, it's got a pretty good angle that it hits us at in the summer. Uh, we got long days, but oh yeah, like I don't even fuss with it anymore. I used to kind of go, oh yeah, you can stop your vitamin D in June and then pick it back up in September. But Ashlyn, let me tell you, I see so much vitamin D deficiency. It'll just make you fall out of your chair. You're just like, what? Like four to five Canadians I test. It's just like, not just low, but like rock bottom low. And And so it's just not worth it for how cheap it is. Right. And so like, what's, what do you recommend for people to take for, you know, how many units? So safe daily doses for adults year round, regardless. And this is me just throwing numbers out there. I haven't even tested whoever's listening. 5,000 international units a day is incredibly safe long-term for the majority of of adults listening to this. And sometimes they need more depending on their level. So if I test and it's low, I might go 10 or 12,000 for several months. I'll monitor as we go. And I'll sometimes include vitamin D intramuscular shots as well of about 50,000 units every three or four weeks to really just pump the levels up. And there's just way too many things that's good for that you don't want to walk around with a low vitamin D. You know what they're finding right now is anyone that gets hospitalized with COVID that has negative outcomes, guess what they're deficient in? Yeah. Usually it's vitamin D. And they're seeing this strong correlation. 80% of people that have negative outcomes with COVID are vitamin D deficient. And so you're like, wow, probably should take some vitamin D. So 5,000 units across the board and more if needed. And that's like... People are like, oh, when you're taking more than, well, they'll even say like 4,000, you're just peeing it out. You won't be peeing this one out. So this is a fat soluble, which means it actually builds up in your system very much harder for your body to get rid of fat soluble vitamins. Yes, if you took a high dose B vitamin every day, you'd be peeing it out, right? Like the toilet bowl would have that neon color in it. But (laughs) (laughs) when the toilet bowl glows in the dark, you know, you've had enough. Yeah. But with vitamin D, it doesn't do that. It doesn't, you don't just pee it out hours later. Like it goes through your system and it has, there's just receptors all over your body and places to store it. So you need lots of it. I like that answer because I know I always push vitamin D 
right? I can't, I can't recommend to people, but I can tell people about what good vitamins there are out there. And yep. I do this know one of them. Canadians are very vitamin D deficient, but yeah, like you said, COVID patients with like vitamin D is a huge deficiency yep. in them. Yeah. Yep. 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 It says that, you know, what the real epidemic and pandemic is, is some of these micronutrient deficiencies that is causing people to have a poor immune response. And this is not something people are talking about. Like, you know, if I was on a major news stream right now, they would have cut me off already. Like that's how much this message is getting silenced where it's just like, yeah, it's, it's an epidemic of micronutrient deficiencies and a poor functioning and responding immune system. Cause it's like, why would someone have it absolutely hammer them and level them? And then the next person can fight it off. It's like, you know, clearly there's something at play here and that's where a good solid terrain and health foundation and micronutrient pool is just critical right now, especially now more than ever. Um, this is off. Have you had some patients who had COVID and then, you know, you needed to like, their levels got depleted or anything like that? Of course. Yeah, I mean, this was like last March when this all was starting before they were testing for it. They were just kind of figuring out, okay, we're, we got to start locking down and people didn't want to go to the hospital. There, You know, there was that really timid moment where people didn't know what to do and everything was shut down. And so I had a patient, a long-term patient actually, and, and she called and she sounded really, really rough. Obviously, you could basically diagnose over the phone something was really wrong with her respiratory system, uh, you know, coughing, breathing issues, fatigue, couldn't go up and down stairs. I uh, had already had a call with her medical doctor who said, yeah, it sounds like you have COVID, um, but there's not much I can do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he just kind of said, if it gets worse, go to the hospital. And then she came to me and said, I don't really want to go to the hospital because this was during that time where nobody wanted to go to the hospital. Well, yeah, because people even, thought it was going to be worse if you were yes, in that environment. Everyone thought it was like a war zone and like, you know, just erupting with people in the waiting room and what's this going to look like? And she was like, if I don't have it, I don't want to go there because I don't want to be around other sick people. So it was, it was just a big um, fiasco, obviously. And so I said to her, I said, you know, uh, it's prudent that I tell you, you probably need to go to the hospital. I know you don't want to go, but based on everything you've told me, my assessment over the phone is you could be COVID, something's wrong, like you need to go. And then she went there and obviously they didn't treat her that well. And this was at a time where they didn't have proper testing and screening. And then, so story short, she went through the whole workup and then the doctor's like, yeah, I think that's what you have. We're going to mark you down as probable. Um, but you're just going to go home and ride it out. And she's like, you're not going to treat me. You're not going to give me like anything to control my fever or like set up an IV or anything. And so even to this day, fast forward 12, 14 months, like there's still no quote unquote acceptable treatment for it. But I got that message from her where I'm like, what, you went through the whole process and she didn't do anything, like mm-hmm. nothing. Like they just said, go home and write it out. And I'm like, screw this. So at that point I charted what I did. Uh, I did my due diligence. She went to the hospital and they still didn't treat her. So I was like, all right, we're going to roll our sleeves up and we're going to throw like the naturopathic immune boosting kitchen sink at this thing. And so I was like, we're getting on vitamin D, we're getting on vitamin C, um, zinc, selenium are critical for powering the immune system right now. And just gave her all like these, you know, antiviral herbs and stuff, you know, again, things that they don't want um, to be common knowledge, but we've been using for hundreds of years, um, work really well, right? And in a matter of like two weeks, like she kicked it and she was fine. And I think this is an immunocompromised patient. Yeah. And it's important for people to hear these things too. Like you said, this information isn't being out there. People are going to, I know. And I hate talking about it, like anything COVID related, because 
people are so fired up about it. So I literally do not talk. I shared a, a video on my story the other day, uh, CrossFit had done a, a video just about like, you know, how they were saying that people who are in better health had better odds. And I wanted, it was a powerful video because I truly believe that, you know, if you're taking care of your health, it's going to help you. But I also don't want to fuel that fire with people because it's just all they've talked about for the last year. Yep. And that's just it, right? We're getting to a point now where, you, you know, you talk to people or you get together and you try and catch up and it always turns to this, right? And it just like, you know, do we talk about it? Do we not? Um, but I think it's important because I've been talking about it now, you know, 15 months almost going on and mm-hmm. sharing all these wonderful immune boosting things people can be doing. Because if you just watch the television, you'll think there's nothing I can do to increase my odds at being healthy and getting through this better when that's quite the opposite. There's, there's tons you can do and it's just not common knowledge. And no matter how many press conferences you watch, people are just not going to mention these things. I mean, I think in the last 12 months, like zinc was mentioned like once and like how many press conferences have there been? And yet they'll still sit there and say like, there's nothing you can do to boost your immune system. And, um, prevent a negative outcome. And I just say that's complete BS. Uh, I believe the opposite. And if you just arm yourself with the right information, do the right health supportive things, um, test and replete your micronutrient deficiencies, especially the ones that power your immune system. Like it's an absolute no brainer that your system will work better. And this is like, this is what I was talking about. Your Instagram stories, you're always sharing all these free tips for people who, you know, if they want the information, like you have it for them. If, I do. if you're wanting to take that step with your health and be like, you know what, I want to make sure that I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to put myself in the best position possible that if I do come into contact with this virus that I'm going to, you know, be able to be on my tip top self. It's like, That's right. follow these things, you know? So what, simple. Yeah. <laughs> what is the worst that, that could happen that you took totally. some supplements, <laughs> you know, like really? So yeah, I know. No, I like it. And I like that you're putting it out there and, um, and it, it gives people some hope too that, cause some people totally. are just straight up scared. Yep. So, and I get it. I feel that too. I mean, everybody does, but as soon as you know, you're scared or you're fearful, you're not sure what to do. It's like, you just have to go right back to Kate. What can I control? What can mm-hmm. I do? What are some actions I can take to make this better as opposed to just focusing on the negative, the negative, the negative, the victim mentality, as opposed to well, I'm in the driver's seat after all, this is my body. So yeah. let, let's figure out what we need to do to make it better. Uh, and, and then when you direct it towards yourself and things you can control, all those other little things that just noise around you just kind of goes away. And listening to the news, right? It's going to put you in that position where you feel yeah. like you have nowhere to go and nothing right. that you can do. So yeah, I like that. I like all of the stuff that you're saying. So inflammation, we got her down. And honestly, yeah. you guys, like, I'm not joking. I, I talk about my back a lot and I am getting back into my squats again. And like, I haven't in months, it was in a rough spot. So I tried everything that Drew said, tested it myself, can confirm. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I, I still would have given your name out, Drew. <laughs> nice. Um, okay. So as we talked about COVID, stress levels are high right now. So many people are so stressed out. You know, it's uncertainty. It's like everything that's going on right now. Um, people who work in healthcare feel feeling extra pressure. They're just stressed out. 
but you also have some ways to, Mm -hmm. to help with that as well. So, okay. So somebody comes to you and they're talking about stress and anxiety and whatnot. What do you do? What is your, what are your first steps? Sure. The funny thing is people come to us and this was told to me in school as well. They're like, ah, probably about 85, 90% of the reason people come to see you is stress, but people don't usually mark that down. Cause when we have an intake form, we'll say, what are like your most common concerns or what are the things you really want to tackle today with your health? And people don't usually write stress, right? But I know deep down it's there for most people. However, this last year has been super obvious because people have just, for the first time in my six years of practice, people are literally coming in and blurting it out almost. So it's actually kind of obvious how bad it's getting. It's been there all along, but now it's just at a much, much, much higher level. Similar to the inflammatory stuff, stress is a common thread with a lot of chronic diseases, right? Because much like inflammation, a little bit of acute stress is totally fine. Say you just had a workout or say you're about to cross the street and you realize you're about to get hit by a bus and then you jump backwards and you get that shot of adrenaline and butterflies in your stomach. Those small, like short little bursts of stress are actually pretty good and helpful. Like they're protective, right? It helps you heal and come back stronger. It's, it's part of like our survival mechanisms. But if in your, if you're in like fight or flight or survival mode all the time, eventually it'll burn your system out and it suppresses a ton of systems. Yeah. Like I was looking at my client um, check-ins this week, things that they're noting in them, um, poor sleep, uh, feeling overwhelmed, um, you know, and then they're talking about like, I feel like I'm at a plateau right now. And I'm like reading all these things in there. And I'm like, I talked about, you know, things like with work and family, and she just felt a lot of pressure, you know, not saying like, anxiety, stress, those types of words. And sometimes, like, I don't even know if they understand, like, they feel like they feel off. But they don't realize that it's a whole bunch of, you know, compounding stress pressing down on them. And I'm just like, okay, we need to like, you know, take it back a few steps here. Cause like all these words that you wrote here, like that you have some major stress going on. So like you said, someone comes into your office, they are telling you about some of the things and like they, 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 maybe they come in and, and they say like, I can't like, do you hear people say like, I'm having trouble, like losing weight. I am like eating, you know, the right amounts of food and exercising and all those types of things, but I just can't lose weight. Does that trigger all to you? All the time. Okay. <laughs> that happens a lot. <laughs> I mean, that is one of the number one things I hear plus low energy, mm-hmm. hair loss. Those are kind of the big ones that I hear from women a lot. And yeah, it's just like you were saying, you look at all these things and you're like, okay, they didn't write down stress necessarily, but you're starting to see a common thread of what could be causing all this or what can be making all this worse. Um, and yeah, that's usually a big, big part of it. And it goes actually one step further because if you're just chronic stress, chronic fight or flight, or your body's in that state of like, it doesn't know where its next meal is coming from, or it feels like it's having to like run from something, um, not a very good place to be for a long period of time. And what that does is it just kind of like artificially suppresses your metabolism. So anytime we're dealing with like chronic weight loss patients where they're like, you know, I'm tracking, I'm hitting my calories, I'm doing all the weight training, I'm getting good sleep, or maybe they're not, because that will also impact weight loss. But say they are getting good sleep, yet they still have this chronic stresses that suppresses their thyroid function. And that's what controls your metabolism system wide. And so that's why anytime we're treating a metabolism or weight loss case, you're always kind of curious, like, what's the stress and adrenal system doing? Uh, how is that impacting the thyroid system? Because that's honestly what you know helps us burn fat and creates energy and as it controls our basal metabolic rate. So those systems are just 
tied together so intricately um, that the standard system doesn't always see it that way. But this is a huge topic that, um, you know, we can do a whole podcast on, but this is a big part of what I do when I'm sniffing around in these kind of cases where I'm like, I, I know I trust you and I know you have a good trainer in Ashland or someone else that's like really looking at these things for you. But there's there's something else that's causing like a sluggish system for whatever reason. And then the other big thing with cortisol is you'll see, you know, they, they stay fairly lean everywhere except the belly fat, right? You get kind of that midsection weight gain and that usually stems from cortisol and just chronic, chronic stress, right? So they, you pinpoint that and you have to send them for some testing just to see where all of their levels are at. Correct. Yep. Exactly. You get a baseline on a few things. I would either do a, a urine or a saliva test to see what their cortisol levels are doing because cortisol should be high in the morning and then slowly fall as the day goes. You should have high amounts in the morning to get your butt out of bed, to hit a workout, to start the day sharp. And then it just gradually fades through the afternoon, evening, and then it should be low, fairly low at bedtime because then melatonin comes up. And the trouble with high cortisol levels the whole day is it antagonizes melatonin at night. And so you'll have sleep issues if you have high cortisol at night. And the number one keynote for this, for anyone listening, is if you're uh, tired but wired, meaning your body feels tired, you just want to fall asleep, you're, you're just heavy, you're, you're, you're blown essentially, but then you go to bed and you can't turn the mind off and it's racing and the thoughts are going and you just can't shut down. And so that's a cortisol stress response where your body wants to sleep, but it can't. And what? so, yeah, I, I would get baselines on all these systems. What do you do for your uh, virtual clients in when they're out of province for those tests? I have majority of them set up for what's called drop shipping. So we just send the patient's information, their address to the lab, and the lab sends them a kit either via UPS or FedEx. Kit arrives to their home. Very easy for them to collect urine, saliva. Those are super easy to collect at home. And if they need to do a blood sample, the main lab I'm using requires a finger prick. And then they drop a few drops of blood onto a collection card. And so That's I've been rolling pretty super good cool. through COVID. Yeah, I, I don't yeah. even have to send. Majority of the tests I need to run for what I treat not all of them, but majority, I, I can just send kids to people's homes and they do it there. And so that's another thing that I was saying earlier that kind of was just spawned with COVID was like, how do I still keep my practice rolling? How can I still get test kits to people without them going to the lab if they are on lockdown or in isolation or they don't want to leave for whatever reason? I just made it super simple. And I started calling to the labs and they're like, yeah, no problem. We'll just do drop shipping. So I just drop ship these kits all over North America now. It's pretty easy. That is amazing. I definitely thought that you just set it up with like local labs that you would just send them to those labs to, to take, but that's even cooler. It's even better. Yeah. Very impressed right now. Yeah. Um, so when their levels come back, then how do you treat them? So obviously it's going to vary on the case and the levels, but you know, in the case of a low functioning thyroid, uh, if it is substantially caused from cortisol stress, the adrenal system being a problem right away, we're going to use adaptogenic herbs. And these are just a fancy term for herbs that are grown in really harsh climates that help us as humans adapt to and deal with stress. It's really not always just a stressful event, but how our bodies respond to it, right? Because, you know, you can have two people in the same situation respond very differently to stress. But we want to be really good because as humans, we're always going to have it. You know, there's a saying I say to people, and it's sometimes a little blunt, but the only people that don't have stress are, are dead people, right? So you want to be able to adapt to and deal with stress for the rest of your life because you know it's going to be coming at you from work, family, relationships, workouts. Like, it's just not going to stop, right? Let's be honest. But if you can adapt to and deal with it better, 
that will in turn help take the stress off your thyroid. That will help you, you know, have less anxiety and sleep. And then you can kind of just have that water off the duck's back. When things come at you throughout the day, you'll be able to shed it off easier. So um, adaptogenic herbs are critically important for the adrenal system because these plants, a few of them like rhodiola, ginseng, ashwagandha, they are grown in super harsh climates throughout the world. Like Siberian ginseng is grown like in the high mountains. It's really cold and harsh. So these plants take on those characteristics to be able to withstand those harsh environments. And that way, when you ingest them, you actually take on that benefit and it helps you be a little more resilient as a human. And so right away, if someone's got wonky cortisol levels, like say it's, say it's flat low, you might want to bring it up with some adrenal glandulars and some good herbs. Like I just talked about, if it's way too high, and they're in sort of an alarm phase where things are running too high, especially at night, you need to bring the cortisol levels down. So you use more cortisol dampening herbs like ashwagandha and phosphatidylserine and things like that. Those help bring cortisol down. So it's very case by case specific. And then if someone has a hypothyroid case, might need medication, might also just need some thyroid herbs. So a very, again, just um, case by case, but those are some of the approaches I use. And if someone's really, really depleted and they're in town with me, uh, we'll do like uh, adrenal and thyroid specific uh, IV um, vitamin and mineral drips as well, just to kind of replete their bodies. Um, and then of course we could, we could talk about food and, and, and its implications in this as well. And I know that's one of the big pieces you offer and back just for a sec on our inflammation chat, settling down um, food intolerances and making sure your diet and gut health is in check. That's a really good way to keep inflammation in check as well as um you know making sure that your your thyroid and your adrenal system is good too because a lot of stress can come from there as well people are so funny because they're just like oh like i'm you know my guts haven't been feeling well and i'm like okay well here's a list and i always refer to like you know fodmap foods um because we talked about you know different foods that can cause some gut disruption in the last podcast we did together. Um, but I'm like, okay, just like, look at this list. Like, are you eating a lot of these? And they're just like, mm, I'll just see if it gets better. And I'm like, okay, well, how about we try like, you know, taking some of these out? And they're like, yeah, I'm good. It's so funny. It's like, you tell them to do it. And they're like, oh yes, this is serious. I'm like, you guys, <laughs> I'm telling you. We've been talking about this for a while. <laughs> yeah, like, Let's try maybe taking some of these. And they're just like, mm, I'll probably be better next week. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, okay. So yeah, even sometimes when I tell people things, they're just like, mm, okay, that's, that's nice. <laughs> so, <laughs> and that's another reason why it's really good to be able to refer out to yes, someone else. But yeah, I think too, people don't realize like, you know, weight loss is a stressor. Worrying about your weight loss is a stressor. Exercise is a stressor. And people are like, mm -hmm. when I'm really stressed, I like to just, you know, dig myself into the ground in a hard workout. So it's like stress on stress on stress. Add it up. It's like, ooh. And then I've got, you know, all of my shift working individuals. Um, That's a big one. Yeah. Like their sleeves mess up. Like, and we know this because Curtis is a shift worker and like, you know, it's, like it's so hard on your body and it is messing yep. up with your hormones and Huge. yeah. So, okay. Someone comes to you, they're a shift worker, poor sleep. Are you just automatically like, Hmm, there's probably something going on with yep. stressors and, and testing for cortisol levels. 
Yeah. And hormones, like you just said. So the people that have the worst, whether it's males, testosterone scores or females, estrogen and progesterone problems is, is usually the shift workers. So that's anyone that works in a hospital, a cop or a firefighter routinely have, and it could be young, like mm-hmm. you're in mine age, maybe like yeah. maybe even younger, like, like late twenties and their, their hormone system is like, it's, it's blown. And you're like, Whoa, you just see the impacts of the shift work, the mm-hmm. irregular sleep, sleeping in the middle of the day, working in the middle of the night. We're, we're creatures of, of habit that respond to light and dark. And so when you go completely flip of that, it totally rattles your system. So yeah, their cortisol levels are all over the place. Their sleep is wonky. And as a result, their hormones get thrown. And that's a big, big piece when it comes to hormone um, imbalance cases too, because why would a 35 year old female that's otherwise healthy have just like rock bottom estrogen and progesterone and then you trace it back and you're like oh well this cortisol is thrown off oh and it's off because of the you know the sleep and the shift work and so i always tell shift workers this you can do it for 5 10 15 years when you're in your 20s and 30s but i would be always thinking in the back of your mind how can i get out of this mm-hmm. sooner rather than later because your health absolutely depends on it i studied this in university the effects on your health from shift work are pretty profound. They see cancer and heart disease rates go way up. Obviously the things I, I notice in real time is like the cortisol and the hormone system gets totally thrown. So um, it's a real topic if, to just put on the table. If somebody stops working shift work, can their levels start to come back on their own or will it be a struggle? Like if they don't, you know, get some help with them. Yeah, it will come back. It'll be a lot slower and a lot more of a struggle. So if, if it's, you know, if it's bottomed out and they're getting back on a regular sleep pattern, great. But then you would, you'd be hitting it with whatever else they need, like hormone support, balance the adrenals, uh, give all kinds of stuff to help with those systems for sure. You, you, you would want to do that. And with sleep and, and stress, those two, they're kind of just fueling each other, right? If you're stressed, you're going to sleep shitty. And yep. if you're not getting enough sleep, it's going to your increase stress. your stress levels. <laughs> like, <Totally>. like, <laughs> your resiliency goes down, right? For every like hour lost, or if you get in six hours or less, like your ability to deal with whatever the next day is going to throw at you goes way down. And we see that through and through. And yeah. it you know, you affects ever, your insulin sensitivity as well. You've, you've probably never seen anybody who's like, yeah, I sleep pretty well, but I'm super stressed. <laughs> Not usually. No. 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 <laughs> so that's and, why. And that's, yeah. Like, kind of the chicken or the egg, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and when people are like talking about stress to me in their nutrition check-ins, I'm like, okay, well, we need to like dial in some sleep here. People don't take sleep seriously enough. Nope. There's so many people trying to live off six, like six hours isn't enough for you. No, it's not. It's, it's really like a superpower to sleep at least seven or more hours a night because it'll just change everything. It's like the ultimate anti-aging hack as well. Like you just have to consider the effects negatively if you don't. So you, you, you have to take this seriously. And thankfully for me, the Jamesons are pretty good sleepers. I've always slept like a log. I can usually get seven to eight hours every night. And it's rare if I wake up that I can't fall back asleep. But let me tell you, this last year especially... Um, and even just being a doctor, I realized how many sleep problems people have. Like it's, it's quite something from full blown insomnia to night waking syndrome to, I can't fall asleep for two or three hours. Like just horrendous stuff that doesn't sound fun to me at all. And I know a lot of people struggle with it, but it's like, got to get your sleep right. Otherwise, you know, all this other stuff, all these fancy things that we can test for and give people, it's like, 
you're missing such a big piece by not prioritizing that. Totally. And they shrug it off. They're just like, oh, well, it would be nice to have the time to sleep seven or eight hours. And it's like, I don't think you actually realize how important it is and what a detriment to your health that you're doing. Mm -hmm. Right. Like you said, increase of, you know, the big diseases, your poor, like you'll be sick all the time. Immune health. You're going to have a hard time losing weight. Huge. Like, like you are so insulin resistant the day after crappy sleep that you're not going to be burning much fat that day. Like, so just keep that in mind for every lost night of sleep that you don't get that seven or more hours. And yeah, you're right. Your immune system won't function as well. Um, when cortisol starts doing weird things, it, it impacts your immune system, right? You need a strong immune system right now, especially more than ever. Oh, I love what you just said about a lost night's sleep. And I'm going to, maybe I'll like even take that little clip out as a soundbite and just like send it to my clients sometimes. I'm like, okay, you guys, we need to start working on some better sleep habits. And like, we're building, like, I know it sounds hard if you're getting five and a half, six hours to like even dream about getting seven. But this week we're going to try to get start slow. 15 more minutes. That's right. Yeah. You just start slow. You don't try and go, Oh, I'm getting five hours. I'm going to get eight. Like it's just too much of a jump, but little bits at a time. And you also have to look at how much alcohol and caffeine people are drinking. Cause if we're talking about sleep, those two mess people up more than they know. They might think one or two or three cups of coffee throughout the day is nothing and it's harmless and there's no problems. And let me tell you, that will wreck your sleep if you're caffeine sensitive. The half-life on caffeine is like five or six hours. So if you're having one, two, three, four cups later in the day, there's tons pumping through your system at bedtime. So that you're shooting yourself in the foot with. A lot of people will also use alcohol with dinner after dinner to fall asleep does it help you fall asleep you bet of course you could pass out easy with it but you don't get deep wrestle sleep and even if you get seven or eight hours you'll feel groggy in the morning Mm -hmm. and it's a crappy way to get a good night of sleep plus if you're interested in burning fat you can't do it while your body's metabolizing alcohol because it ties the liver up um yeah like i got i got a whoop just because Okay, so for what people don't know, Whoop is like a recovery tracking thing. And is the data 100% accurate on it? Definitely not. But it is a good way because I knew I was in a rough spot with some stress after we had moved. And I'm not the type of person who will just like shrug it off. I was like, I got to get to the bottom of this because I'm sleeping like shit. And I like I don't that was my first telltale sign was like how my sleep was. So I got this Whoop to track everything. And we don't drink very often, like at all anymore. Um, And I went and had some drinks one night and I woke up and my recovery score because it bases it on like how well you sleep and how many hours. And it was almost at a zero. That is how much sleep. And like, you know, you should be like, if I was in bed normally for the amount of hours that I was, it would be like, you know, 60, 70, 80% recovered. And it was almost nothing. So maybe a full zero. eh? Yeah. Like it wasn't zero, but I was like, that is embarrassing how I treated my body when I was younger. Like, there you go. It's incredible. Um, you had on your Instagram story, your, what was it like? a 10, five, three, two, one rule or something. I'm just pulling those numbers out of my head. What was your rule? Yeah. That's for anytime I do a sleep video, I like to throw that little memory trick in there. So it's 10, three, two, one, I believe it is. Am I missing a zero on there? But the 10 is, uh, 10 hours before bed, no more caffeine. And then three hours before bed, no more uh, food. So no more food within three hours before bed. And then two hours before bed, no more work. 
So you have to create like transitions and gaps between things before you get to bed. So no more work two hours before bed and then one hour before bed, no more electronics and blue lights. So that would be television, tablet, phone, et cetera. Uh, oh, zero is uh, the amount of times you hit snooze. That was the last piece. So the next morning, just trying to get going to make sure you fall asleep uh, at the same time each night and then get up at the same time and not to stretch either of those two out too far. Just keep them rock solid, consistent. Very hard for shift workers, I understand, but the recommendation still stands that when possible, you're controlling the bedtime and wake up times roughly the same. And then just use the 10, 3, 2, 1, 0 as a reminder of what you need to do. Okay, okay, okay. I know you say three hours, no food. However, Before bed. if it is a small snack that's going to stabilize blood sugar, but not create like enough, you know, like digestion disruption, because there are some people who, you know, if they're dieting will wake up hungry. What do you feel about that? Totally fine. In fact, if it's a small snack and you do have that night waking syndrome or drop a blood sugar in the middle of the night, I, I routinely will suggest that to people. The three hours before bed is no main meals, nothing too heavy, uh, nothing too intense. But I have found that two handfuls of pumpkin seeds before bed is a game changer for people that wake up in the middle of the night with low blood sugar uh, or for any other reason. Uh, really good at just stabilizing blood sugar. It's got the right blend of uh, fats, uh, amino acids for neurotransmitters and like serotonin and melatonin production and just really, really good at keeping blood sugar stable. Uh, honey, for whatever reason, is really good too. So if you like like a warm tea before bed, like a herbal tea that's caffeine-free, uh, you know, teaspoon or two of honey in there is a really slow-release sugar as well. And that can also be really, really good. So yeah, no, like, it's not never have any calories before bed ever, but it's certainly no big meals. Yeah. I like to have a little small snack before bed as well, because I do notice, yeah, same thing, blood sugar. And I didn't want my clients to listen to me that, because I have given them that, like a small snack before bed uh, to be like, Ashlyn, he literally what said no this? food before bed. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm going to cl just clarify with you quick here. I, <laughs> I do have one question for you about melatonin though. Sure. Um, I had heard, like there was another doctor who had said, um, you know, after the age of 40, melatonin production significantly drops in people. Um, are you recommending your clients to start supplementing with melatonin later in life? Yeah, it's a pretty important one because a lot of people just think melatonin sleep, it's not good for anything else, but it's good for a ton of stuff, right? It's an antioxidant as well as a, as a hormone. So yeah, regulate sleep, but really good for brain health. And, and yeah, you're right. As we age, our melatonin levels drop. So we have less antioxidant activity in the brain and obviously neurodegeneration, all these things kind of kick up that we want to avoid. So yeah, the thing with melatonin is I think it's it's overused and abused and sometimes people get like dependent on it or it stops working and sometimes it's dosed way too high. So usually I like a dose between one and three milligrams. And uh, as we were talking about earlier, I do a lot of testing and there's a, a urine test we do that actually checks their melatonin levels. So I'm finding in at least two out of three people that their melatonin levels are really low and crappy. I mean, that's reflective of how poor their sleep is. So I will sometimes do drop dosing of melatonin, which is just a fancy way of saying we use a liquid that has some drops and you're not overdosing. So you're just using a physiologic replacement of one to three milligrams. So, uh, yeah, uh, it's a very beneficial nutrient for a lot of reasons. We'll also use it in certain cancers at very high dose. So you don't always have to think of it as like just for sleep, but it is that antioxidant and it does a lot of other stuff too. So like if somebody is taking like a higher dose of melatonin and waking up groggy, 
it's safe to say that they're probably taking too much melatonin, right? Totally. Yeah. Um, I just, and that's the thing I tell them to watch out for. Yeah. Yeah. Like, cause <laughs> it's, uh, is yes. My father's life, my father-in-law is like, I take 10 milligrams. He's like, but in the morning, like I wake up groggy and I'm like, I, I feel like that's too much, you Probably know, too much. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's why you're waking up groggy, but he's like, it works really well. I fall asleep so well. I sleep, you know, I don't get up in the night to go to the bathroom or anything. I'm like, it'll knock you out. <laughs> yeah. You should definitely in a deep sleep. <laughs> um, supplements people can be taking to increase sleep. Like I do sleep quite well. You know, I'm like Joe, like now that, you know, like figuring out stress levels or whatnot, but like there are times where I would just like it to be just a little bit better. Like, is sure. there certain, you know, things that I could look at for myself? We'll use me as an example. Sure. Some other really cool, safe ones that I use and recommend all the time. Uh, we mentioned ashwagandha earlier. Great for lowering cortisol at bedtime. Wonderful to help put you to sleep. If you actually look at the Latin name of it, it's called Withania somnifera. So the, the second part, som, somnifera, som, somnolence. So it's actually specifically named for its capacity to help you sleep. And then GABA and L-theanine are great. L-theanine is uh, an extract from green tea. Great for anxiety and also just settling down the body and mind. And GABA is an inhibitory neurotransmitter. So when you consume things like alcohol that like help depress and lower your system, it taps on the GABA receptors in your brain. So instead of boozing, because I'm not a huge fan of that, um, you can take GABA as an inhibitory neurotransmitter orally, super safe, helps settle down the body and mind and relax the system. So California poppy seed tincture is also really, really good for help uh, settling down, um, not just chronic pains throughout the body, but helps people sleep. Uh, herbal teas that I like as well too. If people are into herbal teas, you should definitely look at passion flower. Um, Avena tea is good, which is oats. Uh, what else we got? Um, Skullcap is another one you can take as a herbal tea. Like I would, um, I would love to, Valerian. I would be up peeing in the night if I drank something before bed. So <laughs> I try to like stay away from any small cups of tea. Yeah, like I, you know, I'm like no water like after eight. Like I'm not even going to be able to finish my water now because <laughs> we're doing this. Yeah. You can get, you can get a lot of those herbs I just mentioned that you could take as a tea. You could do as a tincture, which would be just a few drops. And that would probably be an easier medium if you don't want a lot of fluid. Um, last question, sleep related. Cause sure. everybody's, you know, doing like CBD these days and that. Is it helping? Is Are you actually getting quality sleep? Um, like with THC, I find anybody who's probably supplementing with that, like, are they actually like getting into that good deep sleep with it? Or is it like alcohol where it's, you know, you never fully dive into the, the good sleep? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know if I have an awesome answer on does it impact deep sleep or not. So you make me want to look into that. But I'll tell you my experience professionally and personally with CBD at bed. I think it's good stuff. And this is coming from a kid. You know, I've never really done much weed. I come from Langley where that's all they do out there. And so never smoked a lot, never done a lot. Um, but medicinally, it's caught my eye over the years. And as naturopathic doctors, we have a lot of herbal training, obviously. I uh, mentioned a ton of herbs already here tonight. And so cannabis and, you know, CBD and THC has become... Uh, a very big one in my practice over the last few years, especially with the legalization of it, because people can just get it anywhere now and you know, it's high quality. And so it's good for a ton of things, right? Like anxiety, stress, uh, sleep, relaxation, anti-inflammatory, 
recovery from workouts. Like it just goes on and on and on. Um, hunger, appetite, and doesn't interact with any other drugs. And when you get a whole cannabis plant extract that's standardized with CBD and just a little bit of THC, uh, personally, and with a lot of my patients, wonderful sleeps, great sleeps. I mean, some people, they get to the point where it's just like, that has been the one game changer for them. And they've had chronic sleep problems their whole life. So, uh, I think so far and, and from the research and seminars and courses I've taken on it, very, very, very good option. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think it's good. 20 milligrams of CBD with about 0.7 to one milligram of THC is important. The reason I say that is because it helps synergize and drive and activate the CBD. It's kind of like eating an orange, uh, yes, it has vitamin C in it, but if you take the vitamin C out of the orange and leave all the other stuff behind, it's not going to work as well because there's bioflavonoids and other molecules in the orange that help the vitamin C do its job. And so CBD is the same when you take that one constituent out of the plant and try and isolate it and take it by itself. It doesn't work as good as when you get a plant extract with CBD and THC. So it's important to have a bit of both. And now you don't want too much THC because what happens when you take too much of it, right? You get bake stoned or ripped and so that's not what we're going for and that's why i think abuse of the plant and people that smoke all the time and just want to get high and kind of escape life it's not really what i'm talking about when we're using these plants we're using them medicinally for specific reasons and so a little bit crumbs of thc like 0.7 to 1 is not going to cause that effect but if you take three to five milligrams of thc like yeah you'll you, you'll be baked stoned and ripped and that's not what we're going for but i like it in a roundabout way to answer your question just because we just touched on the topic of drugs, I've been reading a lot of studies about uh, psilocybin, magic mushrooms for yeah. people who don't know what I'm talking about, uh, and some of their health benefits. Have you done any research or, or read anything up on that? Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Years ago, because I'm a big fan of Tim Ferriss, and so I always get his books when they come out, and he's done extensive interviews with people that have been microdosing psilocybin, which is, yeah, uh, an extract from medicinal mushrooms for dealing with anxiety, depression, but notably PTSD, they've been able to really treat and help people with because these patients are very tricky. These conditions are, um, you know, multifactorial. And so our treatment of them in the mainstream medical world is not great. It's a lot of suppressive drug therapies that don't end up going anywhere a lot of the time. So the microdosing of these nutrients uh, is proven to be very, very powerful for these patients and having breakthroughs and, and blasting through plateaus with their healing. So it's another one that I have my eye on, but not used it personally or know too many patients that have, but there's tons of research being done on it, has been done on it. And so I, I suspect in the coming years, they're going to really be um, using a lot more psilocybin in their toolkit for treating some of these conditions. Yeah, I love it. I think that's a great place to leave it. Man, we touched Ooh. on some good stuff tonight. A lot of good stuff. Thanks for taking the time to come on and chat again with me today. Like my clients are literally just chomping at the bit for this episode <laughs> to come out. They want to hear everything Dr. Drew has to say. Awesome. No, I'm happy to be on again. It was a lot of fun. And maybe perhaps when I come over to the mainland for a doctor's appointment with you, we can do a little like walkthrough you know, what we're doing, um, with some of the stuff as well. Some of the things we sure, chat about yeah. and yeah, we'll try to hook up any of the listeners with some more info and give Drew a follow on Instagram and all that other good stuff. Head over to my Instagram page at sweat underscore effect for all of my insights, experiences, and daily doses of goodness until next time. Keep on having fun and keeping fit.